Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. In our first episode with Tim, we learned how he came out of the womb with certain weaknesses that would come to make him very strong, and how those strengths guided him to write the four-hour work week. Today, we talk about how the success of that book propelled him into the world of investing, and how his new book, Tribe of Mentors, gave him a chance to get advice from some of the world's great financial minds. And boy, can I use it! Money is one thing I have never been very good at. In fact, to be honest, I need help! So this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Trust me. But first, let me introduce you to my partners on this podcast, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter. If you don't have a website in this world, who are you? Do you even exist? I used to be that guy. Then I got Kevin, the manager, to help me make one. And you have Squarespace. Squarespace will help you bring your idea, business, or passion project to life on the internet in the most beautiful way. Visit squarespace.com for a free trial. Use the offer code FUSSMAN to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. A few clicks and you're on your way. There's an old saying in business, hire slow, fire fast. You know what I say? Hire fast with ZipRecruiter and you won't have to fire at all. In one click, you can boost your job to more than a hundred of the top job boards. Then, their smart technology will notify the most qualified candidates. In just one day, you'll get a quality candidate through the site, just like 80% of the employers who post. And right now, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Part two with Tim Ferriss. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Part two. Here we are. So we, we left off after part one with the publication of your first book, Four Hour Work Week, and becomes a huge success. And that gets me to thinking. <laughs> thinking about something I'm not so good at. And that is money. <laughs> okay. All right. So, you know, we've we've gone through your development and some of your jobs when you're getting starting out. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you are a top selling author and money's coming in. Yeah. And I'm wondering what happens at that point because you are to go on to become a great investor. <laughs> yeah, eventually uh, created the perception of me as a great investor. 
we can we can certainly talk about that. Uh, those two things, the the seeds of the investing started around the same time. So I should mention that. Uh, then I made a, a series of incredibly poor decisions about how to allocate my resources, which. Oh, this is I why suppose, I asked. So, yeah, which okay, ironically that's... coincide. So the seeds of later good things began in 2007, perhaps only a month after the four-hour work week came out. And I was, at the time, having brunches or lunches or breakfasts, probably breakfasts, with a really nice friend of mine named Mike Maples Jr. And Mike Maples at the time was a very successful angel investor. He had been a key player at two startups uh, of his own that were, or I should say, uh, as an operator that I think both, one was sold for a few hundred million dollars and one was taken to IPO, initial public offering. And he'd since turned his attention to investing and had proven very, very adept at it. So we were having these lunches. I had met him because he at the time was the son-in-law of my professor at a huge impact on me, Ed Shao in high-tech entrepreneurship, and he'd spoken in the class. Mike had wanted to lose a little bit of weight. I told him I had figured that out, and uh, this was a good time beforehand, and I moved to the Bay and took him to the gym a number of times, gave him some guidelines, and he lost a bunch of weight. So that is how we had become bonded as friends. And during these brunches, he would ask me for PR or he would pose PR or marketing cases for me that were related to his startups. He'd say, I'm involved with this startup that does X. They've tried A, B, and C. They want to do the following. What would you do with these assets that they have? Or what angle might you take for pitching to the Wall Street Journal or this particular beat reporter at fill-in-the-blank publication? And we would role-play this. And I would tell him what I would do. And occasionally, he would take notes, and those would get then conveyed to the startups, and, and very often, they ended up working. This uh, is unbelievable. This uh, is storytelling. It's storytelling. Now, simultaneously, though, keep in mind, he's not just interviewing me during these lunches. We're friends. So I would then say, well, I need to know a little bit more about how this deal came to be, why the company was chosen by you, why is this company different from this other company? How did you structure the deal if they're threatened by an incumbent doing something very closely related like an Amazon or something like that. And over time, over these lunches, I then became fascinated by the investing side of his life and began to get into the details, as I do with my <laughs> obsessive nature. And I would ask him about specific clauses. Well, what is a, cl what is a clawback? What does that mean? What do pro rata rights mean? Uh, and so on and so forth. So over time... I developed some vocabulary that helped me to understand this foreign world. And my advice to the startups seemed to be helping them to increase their value. And now there's a third thing that's happening simultaneously. This is a bit like Rashomon, but we're going to get there. It's so, one of my favorite movies. It is a good movie. If you don't get the reference, go watch the movie. So, <laughs> so at the same time, I had also been contemplating taking, as I had for several years, a two-year vacation that looks good on a resume, which is otherwise known as an MBA. And I had always wanted to go to Stanford. I did not, as we think, covered, I had not had the most joyous of experiences at Princeton 
always thought, you know, Stanford was the one I missed. It was the one that got away. I couldn't wait for the acceptance letter or rejection letter because the Princeton offer was exploding. I really want to go to business school at Stanford GSB, as they called it. But I went through the application process a few times, and there were always a number of classes that blew my mind, taught by real operators who'd been in the field building things. And then a very large selection of classes taught by theoreticians. And there's a place for it, but highly academic, somewhat removed from the real world, ivory tower speculators. And that bugged me. Uh, I, I recognized some of the value, but they spoke as if they were practitioners. And that struck me as odd and dangerous. So I, I always bailed at the last minute in finishing my application to Stanford Business School. But what was the promise of business school? The promise of business school, in my mind, was not the $120,000 you spend for two years at the time, $60,000, $60,000. That's a sunk cost, but it's the skills and the relationships that you develop that then pay off over time. So while I'm having this lunch with Mike, I start thinking to myself, well, I'm not going to go to Stanford, but what if I created my own real-world MBA where I invested in startups and did $60,000 each year for two years. Oh, man. And it's the Tim Ferriss MBA where I assume that is a sunk cost. So I assume that every investment is going to tank to zero, but that I can approach doing it in a way that I develop more relationships with people like Mike, with entrepreneurs, and develop a skill set of assessing deals and so on that will ultimately, in the long term, return that many-fold. And so, so that's... E even if you break even, you've gotten your... You're extremely MBA. far ahead. Yeah. Even if you lose the money, my assumption... So this, the assumption's very important. The assumption was I would not make that money back in the investments, but that I would make that money back over the long haul by developing relationships and skills that would transcend that two-year period. So you're willing to go through the 120000 because it was worth it. That's just tuition. Like, I viewed it was as tuition. tuition. Wow. And so that was a good decision that I made. Uh, I proceeded shortly thereafter because I didn't know what I was doing to make a bunch of really bad investment decisions, all of which went to zero. <laughs> you, but, you lost the 120. Uh, I didn't know. So I didn't lose 120, but the first 50... I lost almost immediately. And I remember... <laughs> like in one day, in two days. Oh, in like one, in one bet. And I remember Mike, who's originally from Texas, and he loves to play this card, which I now play myself because I can use Long Island as a crutch. He's like, well, I'm just a slow country boy. Yeah, 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 and whenever someone time. says that to you, be very, very careful because <laughs> they are setting you up. Uh, and so he'll be like, well, I'm, I'm just a slow country boy, but do you think that might be a little aggressive? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no way, Mike, this is going to be the next Google. And he's like, okay, kid. And then just, you know, I have to learn not to put my hand on the stove. Uh, and that's a lesson you have to learn personally. So the, the point being that in the very beginning, I made a number of very, very poor decisions uh, that were, were emotionally charged. And keep in mind, like you said, the four-hour work week's just come out. And all of a sudden, people are sending me invitations and opportunities in a way that I'd never experienced before. So I made the, <clears throat> at the time, what seemed like the right decision, 
to say yes to everything. I said yes to everything. So all the speaking, the, the speaking engagement offers that came in, and I said, wait, let me get this right. You'll pay me to come talk? And they're <laughs> this like, is what uh, yeah. <laughs> General Schwarzkopf once uh, told Larry King that uh, speaking for a living is white collar crime. <laughs> is not that far off. And so I said, wait a, second, wait a second. So I get to come and talk about whatever I talk about and you pay me for it. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what we do. I'm like, oh, well, yes. <laughs> so I said yes to all of it. Now, so now even right. more money's well, coming in. Well, now, so keep in mind, so there's money going out because I'm making bad investment decisions. <laughs> and then there's money coming in from the speaking engagements. So I said yes to everything, but to paint a picture, this is a fairly common experience for authors who have never been exposed to this before. If they have a success, they go, oh my God, like this is just miracle money. And they say yes to everything. And then what happens? What happens is you pay no penalty until six months later when all of these things are stacked every three days for whatever, let's just call it, Two months. Surrendered your freedom. You have, you cannot accomplish anything else. And I also made a huge novice mistake, which was I tried to do, you're going to, you're going to love this. Uh, I tried to do a unique talk for every audience, <laughs> which, which is not, it. by the way, how you do, not how you play this game at a high <laughs> level. The way you play this game at a high level is you have your specialty moves and you just get really good at your specialty moves and throw in like a local reference, right? It's sort of like a politician. They, they it's they like Chattanooga, how about them beaver tails? Ha ha ha. And then you roll into your material that you know works. It's not like a stand-up comedian does a new show every week. It'd be suicide, which is exactly the same with public speaking. So I ended up feeling like George Clooney from, uh, I think it's Up in the Air, is that the one where he travels with his backpack everywhere? And that's his life, is like gathering points at hotels. So that's how I felt for a while. Uh, but yes, to your point, there were suddenly opportunities coming in and, and learning to say no or filter things became more important than the enthusiasm and willingness to say yes. So it's, it's a, that's a huge gear shift uh, when you are w accustomed to being able to, having the capacity, and keeping in mind, you know, I'm bouncing around a little bit, but that uh, I had been a, by any definition, uh, extreme workaholic for a very long period of time, and then had all these experiences, took my walkabout around the world, and found a more elegant way to approach it. But that that little devil on the shoulder that is telling you, come on, like you can outwork people. You have incredible work capacity. You can always do another speaking engagement. That little that little demon on the shoulder, for any of you, I'm gonna age myself now, who have seen Animal House, like that little devil on the shoulder whispering uh, in your yeah. ear is still there. And uh, so you have to be very careful as someone who's an anything ick addict, in this case for me, workaholic, uh, to avoid the places that are slippery if you don't want to slip, right? As they say in AA. Uh, so I felt the siren song of saying yes to everything because I could overcommit and then figure it out later coming back. And uh, so that was a good test for me. Uh, I think I, I survived it, but I did at points definitely overcommit. So you're making a lot of mistakes at once here. You I'm making 50, a 50 grand's going... 
I'm making a lot of mistakes at once because I'm having, I'm being provided more opportunities to make more mistakes in part. But yes, I'm making tons of mistakes. However, that real world MBA, unbeknownst to me or unexpectedly, I should say, set the groundwork. So it's the mistakes actually sowed the seeds of later success and as this sometimes happens. So I overspent. I mean, first investment, keep in mind, I've allocated in my head 60,000 for the first year, 60,000 for the next. I lose 50K on the first bet. I mean, it's stupid on a, a number of different levels. Now what? I've 10K left for the year. Do I just pull forward and take the 60K, get an advance on the 60K for the second yeah, year? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I realized really quickly, wow, okay, if I want to approach this in a financially uh, responsible way with any nod to portfolio theory and how this game really works, if you understand the probabilities, I'm going to run out of money. Like I don't have enough bankroll as, as say, a poker player. Like if there's an element of chance, like you, the, the, the amount of bankroll you have, depending on the tournament you're entering, is really important. You might be the best poker player in the world, but if you have a string of bad luck, you need to be able to afford the losses. And you were convinced that I'm stopping at 120. You, you weren't going to throw more in. Well, that was the plan, and I wanted to stick to the plan. Uh, so that forced me to have conversations with people who were very good in that space, who Mike, some of, some of whom Mike had intro, intro, introduced me to, uh, to figure out a way to extend the runway without more money. So how do you do that? Well, when I, what I decided to do was to make tiny investments. I was like, all right, no more 50K. That's crazy. I'm going to make tiny investments like 10K, which is kind of the minimum that any company would take. They don't allow you to invest for $10 or something like that. There are exceptions now with crowdfunding platforms and so on. But in, in this world, in 2008, let's call it, you could really put the, the minimum table stakes were 10 grand. All right. So I put in 10 grand and then I proceed to put in like a hundred grand of immediate value of, of work, right? This, this will make sense in a second. So I've, I've begged and pleaded maybe with Mike's help to allow some CEO in a, an attractive company to allow me <laughs> to put in $10,000. All right. Yeah, and so they allow me to do that, and then I proceed because I've I've looked at the company very carefully and have determined that I can fix a number of problems that are low hanging fruit. I immediately put in a disproportionate amount of time. In other words, no investor who is sane, who's only put in ten thousand dollars, would ever put in the amount of work that I proceed to put in. And the CEO goes, "Holy shit." This guy is the cheapest labor and the highest value labor <laughs> oh, no. we've ever seen. What does this allow me to do? This allows me to then develop a reputation very quickly for being high value with a handful of CEOs who can then say, you want him as an investor. And you were just going to school. Because, yes, because I'd learned there's also a role called that of advisor. And if you're an advisor, you do not pay for your equity. You put in sweat, it's, you earn sweat equity. So instead of buying your equity, uh, which in some ways is cleaner, certainly, you give your help and advice and you earn a like 124th or something like that of your total promised equity each month for two years. So you're, you, so you're more like an employee in that sense. So do you mean 
if there was a young company mm -hmm. and I say, look, I, I'm a good storyteller. Mm -hmm. Your company may need its story told. Mm -hmm. Let me help you. And, yeah. th and then they'll allow me to invest by helping them tell stories. By putting in your time. It could be that. So there are people who come in for, there are advisors who are brought in like special purpose weapons for different types of advice. So you might have, uh, or actual work. So there might be someone who's brought in because they have a huge megaphone for a promotion, right? And that became part of my, uh, that became one of my features oh, of the car. Back to the infomercials. <laughs> so that became one of the features of Tim as a product that they could buy, right? Then my ability to help them with messaging and copy in advertising and marketing became uh, another selling point. And as I worked with more companies, I discovered what I was good at or bad at. And I also discovered things that I was unexpectedly and I think everyone has this, but there are certain things that are easy for you that are just harder for other people. It's true, right? could be something as, as simple as, or seemingly simple, as like walking up and starting a conversation with a stranger. It could be something as seemingly simple as looking at a website design and being able to immediately identify flaws in the design that are going to prevent people from clicking on the right element. That you. was something that I had. That was, that was something for whatever reason. Actually, I know what reason because I'd kept all those, um, all those cheat sheets uh, or tear sheets of advertisements that had convinced me to buy. So I'd studied all these ads in print, which were just getting, in many respects, transplanted then to the web. Okay. So f now flash forward 12 months, what has happened? I've become an advisor to Shopify, which at the time had eight employees if you look at it now, they have, I think, 3,000. They're publicly traded. Okay, So I became the very first advisor to Shopify in the early, early days when they had around eight or 10 employees. Uh, I, became one of the f I became an advisor to a company called StumbleUpon, which some people will recognize. StumbleUpon didn't really work out for all of the players involved, but I put in a ton of time with the then, I'm pretty sure he was the CEO at the time, but he was certainly the co-founder, Garrett Camp, and we really hit it off. And I did help stumble upon, even though ultimately the outcome did not return any money for me. Why is that important? Because Garrett Camp went on to be one of the co-founders of Uber. And he invited me to be one of the first three advisors or four advisors to Uber before it was even called Uber. This is when it was Uber Cab LLC in, I want to say, 2008, maybe 2009. And so this 2008 to 2009 period, very fortunately for me, ended up being somewhat of a dot-com depression where there were fewer investors trying to tackle it because it wasn't as sexy as it is now. And only the diehard entrepreneurs remained. So it was the perfect recipe for someone like me to come in from the outside and start to play the game. So almost all, not all, but almost all of my best investments were made in the subsequent, I'd say, two or three years. So I, 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 And I saw the returns, at least on paper, which is something you have to be very careful about, coming back positive in a number of cases. So after the two years had ended, I continued to both advise and invest in companies. And after another year or two, I was reasonably convinced that with some semblance of competence, if I limited myself to 
a very, very, very small subset of companies that checked a whole bunch of different boxes that I could avoid losing excessive amounts of money and that the upside would take care of itself. And uh, yeah, that's what led us all the way, you know, 10 years later to a point where the startups, even after all the books, makes, I mean, it's, it's made at least 10x what I made in all of my publishing combined to date. Uh, and, and the story's not over. I mean, I've, even though I stopped investing about two years ago in startups, uh, for the most part, almost entirely. You for, described yourself, when I asked you to describe yourself, as an angel investor. That was your mm -hmm. first, the first words that came out of your mouth. Right. And that was also a very deliberate decision, as was the second book, For Our Body, related to physical performance, which is not the same as time management and lifestyle design covered in the four-hour work week, was a deliberate decision for me to diversify my identity. I did not want to be, in the beginning, having a niche and dominating that niche or creating a category, even better still, is a huge advantage. But once you have that toehold on the wall, you don't want to be confined to a really narrow band of that wall. So for me, rather than do the three-hour work week <laughs> or the four-hour work week, new and improved, yeah. uh, I wanted to do a completely different subject so that I could become known for my approach to subject matter, not for the subject matter. I wanted to be closer to John McPhee and less similar to someone who becomes a business writer. And I'll never be John McPhee, and John McPhee is the best version of John McPhee, but I want to be closer to a John McPhee or, say, a Michael Lewis. Like Michael Lewis could write a book on you know, tomato harvesting, and just like and I'll McPhee, read it. Yeah, yeah, we would both read it. I wanted to try, at least, to edge in that direction, and if it failed, I could always go back and write the three-hour work week. Uh, and the angel investor, once that had some traction and I felt I had enough credibility to use that label... I began using it at the beginning of, say, bios and so on, so that I could keep the four-hour work week, uh, certainly, but to place it slightly in the background so that I became less and less the four-hour work week guy and more and more Tim Ferriss who does these other three or four things that are of interest to us. Growth. Yeah. Yeah. And also recognizing that the once you have really, really, really firmly established yourself in one area, you can always go back to that. You don't have to cling to it like a life raft. That's always going to be there. It's in your back pocket. So then if you stray and try something new, as far as I'm concerned, it's all upside. There might be some downside and embarrassment, perhaps, if it doesn't work out. But from a survival standpoint, from a financial standpoint, you have your superpower and your world, your niche in your back pocket, you can always go back to it. But if you never stray from that, it, then the mental monster of deviating becomes scarier and scarier and scarier and scarier until you convince yourself after years of this that you can't try something else. And I didn't want to end up there. So from the very beginning, relatively soon after, if you look at the, you know, four-hour body came out 2008. So by the, by the time 2009 rolled around, and I was considering doing a new book, which I thought I would never do, the startup stuff had begun to click into place. I said, okay, well, this is actually a really good time and opportunity for me to uh, still hold on in the back pocket to the four-hour work week, but not to depend on it. Not to be, you know, that guy who was 
the quarterback in high school who's like, you remember the final game in 1982? <laughs> and just can't stop talking about like the glory days that ended in high school. I didn't want to be that guy as it related to the four-hour work week. What fascinates me, and I may be going through a little of the same thing, I'm wondering, are there parallels to maximizing your body and investing or learning about money and, and how to get oh, the most oh, out sure. of it? For sure, 100%. I, and I think that it, a lot of it comes down to a unified approach that is effectively the scientific method. Right, it's an approach. It's a it's a it's a structured way of thinking. So, you have hypothesis. I think perhaps if I did this experiment with the real world MBA, that the outcome would be the following. Then you have a way of testing it so that you're ideally controlling a few variables or at least setting some constraints. Sixty thousand dollars a year, and then you have a means of tracking the results which I could just as easily do in the gym, actually much more easily do in the gym because the feedback loop is so much faster uh, in the gym or by tracking various physical markers. Like I, I just went over 12 pages of blood test results with a doctor last night, so this is fresh on my mind. And uh, then in the investing world, you can certainly do that as well. Uh, so it's it's very much about as Peter Drucker would say, you know, what gets measured gets managed. So I'm measuring the things that I believe to matter, ideally with the input of experts who are in a position to know. And then I'm viewing all of these things as short-term experiments. And not all the experiments work out. I mean, the first investment was not the only one that failed. There were plenty of others that just were like supernovas of capital destruction. I mean... <laughs> You know, poof, <laughs> no rabbit out of a hat. You had a rabbit, now you don't have a rabbit. So, is there a correlation between losing that 50 grand and a painful body injury? I know that's true for some friends. I do have friends who have suffered at one point or another a very severe injury and then had to train around it. And by having to train around it, have developed skills they would never have otherwise developed. Uh, for me, what was it like to lose the 50 grand? <laughs> well, you know, losing the 50 grand would have been easier if they just absconded with the money and ran off to <laughs> Belize because I would have known it was over. But that's not how this movie plays out. So typically, it's like a slow bleed. It's not even like you've cut your femoral artery and you're like, oh no, I have three hours and then I'm going to bleed out. It's like, no, we're just going to nick you with paper cuts. So at some point over the next X number of years, eventually you'll run out of money. <laughs> and you can't pull, you can't get your money out? No, 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 no. Once you're in, you're in. And uh, Oh, so you're, you're just suffering even more. Well, I, yeah, it's a slow death. And then you have, I mean, there are different words that you might use. You have the walking dead, which are <laughs> companies that have somehow managed to figure out to like suck life support from oxygen instead of money. And, and I mean, good for them on, on many levels where they can keep, like, like they can keep the body standing, but there's almost no hope of the company having a successful outcome, but they're, they're able to just keep it hanging on by a thread. So you, you, there are companies that will end up 
in a somewhat of a walking dead position. And perhaps they've made certain mistakes that prevent them from raising additional money, but they've managed to make just enough money to pay for just enough people to keep the website running and they hold on to that hope. And there are cases where those then miraculously turn around. You know, so like, are you thinking like this? Rocky 17 or whatever? You're like, oh my God, <laughs> the guy can barely walk and he just knocked out, you know, Apollo Creed the, the fourth. This is amazing. So there are moments when that happens, but more often than not, if a company gets to that position, they're they're going at some point to just fall to the ground and be done with, but you don't know when that's going to be. So when you sign up for startups, of course, in the news, People hear about, say, Instagram, oh my God, from zero to being acquired for a billion dollars in 18 months or whatever, which isn't entirely, entirely true. But you hear these stories. And so now, these days at least, when like, I've, I've hung up the jersey, like I'm out of that game. But uh, part of the reason I hung up the jersey is that people are coming in, both as entrepreneurs and investors, with the expectation that they're going to find those types of quick flips. Whereas in my experience, and by no means am I uh, the expert. I mean, there are many people who are much better at this than I am. You know, Mike Mabel's included. I think there are many people who are. This is their full time profession, and and uh, they're they're incredibly adept at it. But in my experience, <clears throat> the, the the biggest wins that you will have in the startup world are probably going to be seven to twelve years of your time, and Whoa. that's longer than most marriages. So you, at least for me as an advisor, and I've, I've since shifted back, well, I shouldn't say now because I'm not really doing it, but I've shifted to mostly investing and the sort of the tail end, the last third of my investing career that ended two years ago, which it will get restarted. We can come back to that. I will restart that at some point, but right now the environment is very unfavorable for me. So uh, as an advisor, I'm personally interacting with the founders on a very regular basis or the executive team. I need to like those people. If I'm making a seven to 12 year commitment, right? So even in the most incredible growth scenario, if you look at Uber right now, let's say, okay, so we're talking 2008, right? The founder uh, or one of the co-founders, Garrett, I knew for several years before that. And financially, those were non-returns in that, in that period of time. I had fun. We had a bunch of ventures. We tried a bunch of stuff. I learned a lot. I developed relationships. But on the, on the balance sheet, those few years didn't contribute anything. So let's, let's add those in as a prerequisite for becoming an advisor to Uber because that's, in fact, exactly what it was. But so, I see that as you getting your MBA. No, no, it is, okay. right? But if we're just looking at the numbers, right. so let's call that two years. All right, so that's like 2007 to 2009. And... Where are we now? We're almost to 2018. Okay, so that's 10 years, and Uber, although this may change shortly, is the fastest growing startup in the history of the world, as far as I know. I don't think anyone has, has, has since changed that. And highest valued private company in the world, but I have not, uh, I have not really had the opportunity to take a single dollar out of Uber. So I've, I've been completely illiquid for that entire period of time. And that's in the best, best, best case scenario of hyper growth, right? So that's 10 years. And so with those types of assumptions in place, it's, it's a hell of a ride, man, I tell you. But yes, so the, the real world MBA ended up working out uh, very, very well. And I'm sure there's, there has to be a large element of good timing and luck. Uh, but investing, like weight training, like dancing, like... Uh, ad copy, 
learning to persuade. These are all learnable, coachable skills that seem complicated because it's in the best interest of the participants in the game to make it seem complicated. Oh, it's like lawyers have their own language, so the rest of us can't Right, understand. right. They're speaking Latin while all the rest of us are speaking, you know, Greek because that's that's what the that's to keep the the hoi polloi from sort of muddling the waters <laughs> uh, or muddying the waters, I guess, but muddling things up. And once you peek behind the curtain though and you have the vocabulary, you realize that there are ways to approach all of those things that are relatively simple. And if you just track the right things and run small experiments, your learning curve is going to be dramatically greater than even someone who's been involved for 10 years if they're not establishing any type of trackable feedback loop. It's, it's really, really straightforward. It's like the difference between if, if, let's just say you and I want to learn how to play table tennis. You could pick anything. How to but we'll pick something that has a, a, a kinesthetic component or uh, how to drive in golf. All right. And the only difference, the only difference is that you get video feedback and I don't get video feedback. You're going to progress probably a hundred times faster than I will. Even if I have more, and I'm not saying I do, but even if I have more kinesthetic awareness and sort of God-given uh, a physical awareness that is a huge advantage. If I don't have the feedback loop, I would still bet on you. Uh, and so the, the question in my mind, whenever I'm tackling something new is how can I tighten the feedback loop? What can I use to get micro, but meaningful feedback quickly so I can, I can change something one degree, change it again, one degree, change it again, one degree. And all of a sudden you've skipped 10 years of dicking around and making the same mistake for 10 years. Uh, yeah. so, so for somebody like me who doesn't know anything about money, yeah. would it be wiser to start out by using whatever expertise I have as an advisor and then getting behind the curtain and then studying, seeing how things work? That's one potential approach. Uh, I would start with reading a few books that'll scare you. And uh, the reason is, well... All right, I'm not an investment professional, so speak to your qualified professional before <laughs> making any I know terrible decisions <laughs> in the world of investing, because investing is a very broad term. And really what investing means to me is allocating resources in a way that you move them from an area of low yield to an area of high yield or higher yield. That could be emotional return. That could be how you spend your time so that you have more positive emotion than negative, right? That's an investment. You're investing time, this finite resource. If you're doing it for pure financial return, that's another. You could invest not to increase joy, but to decrease anxiety. And that's part of the reason I stopped investing because it became too stressful. And where did the stress come in? Because it sounds like you're having a good time. You're meeting people. Because, my, well, this, I don't want to get too inside baseball. It was because so much money started coming into the game that the power dynamics between investors and entrepreneurs became all wonky. And I would end up getting emails, and this is a very deliberate power move, and I understand why they would do it, but I would get these emails, dozens of them, that would say, 
would love to have you involved as an investor and advisor. We're closing our round of financing tomorrow. We're already oversubscribed, but we can oh, squeeze you in for 25K. Man. Are you in? You're Mike. not going to do that. And you? I said no, because I did. I, I, my default response to anything that requires a knee-jerk, rash decision in the world of finance is no. If someone's trying to pressure a decision, the answer is no. Now, that doesn't provide any time for proper legal review. And it's preying on, very deliberately and intelligently, I would say, the fear of missing out, the FOMO that is so common among investors. FOMO. Oh, yeah. The FOMO that is so common among investors. And very few good decisions are made when the driver is fear of missing out, in my experience at least. So I just said, you know what? This is already a really difficult game. And I'm, I think I'm pretty good at playing my miniature version of this with all of these tight constraints. So if the environment is such that now it's 20 times harder, it's like, oh, I got really good at soccer, but now they've enlarged the field 10x and all the people on the opposing team are 10 feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I want to wait until things return to some semblance of what I develop my skill set for. Uh, so I will invest again, but it, I will wait until there's blood in the streets and, and uh, the, the, the realities have, have changed a bit. But to your point, you're asking, what should you do if you want to learn to invest? The first thing would be to recognize that you're investing whether you realize it or not. So how you allocate your resources, time, money, attention, those are all forms of investment. Whoa, 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 we got to pause now because Kevin the manager tells me it's time to talk about the people who make all this possible our sponsors you know i was talking to the founder of a big company that was experiencing tremendous growth and i asked him how do you find the right people to fill the openings when they're coming at you so quickly he looked at me shook his head and said to be honest, Cal, it's a tower of jello. Bottom line here is hiring just the right person isn't easy for anybody. That's why I'm excited to have ZipRecruiter by my side on this podcast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 top job boards with just one click. Within minutes of your post, ZipRecruiter's smart matching technology will notify qualified candidates about your job. And the best part, unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. That's why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter can get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. If you're listening, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free right now. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N. ZipRecruiter, it's really the smartest way to hire. Anyone who knows me will tell you, I'm not much of a technology guy. But when I got introduced to Squarespace, I couldn't believe it. They make it so easy to make a beautiful website, customized, with world-class designers. And if you don't know much about technology like me, get this, they have 24-7 award-winning customer service to help. 
If I had this my whole life, imagine what I could have done. Please, don't wait like me. If you're starting a new business, Squarespace is what you need. Take advantage right now. Just head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code FUSSMAN to save 10% off your first purchase of a domain or website. That's squarespace.com, offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N. Enjoy. And we're back. What you just taught me is I spent 10 years traveling around the world without a home. Yeah. That was an investment. It was. Because I was out talking to people, meeting people every day. My interviewing skills were honed during that time. 100%. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Just didn't, you just didn't have a, a four-walled classroom. Everybody was calling me a lazy vagabond. But I was an investor. You were an investor. <laughs> you absolutely were. And when it comes to financial investing, uh, I am always looking for, this is for me. I have my personality. You have yours. We have different strengths and weaknesses. And we have different sensitivity to different types of what people might perceive as risk, right? So for you, like going swimming with a tiger shark, no big deal. For me, that's pretty scary. Like I know surfers had arms bitten off by tiger sharks, so I would be afraid to do that. Or uh, for some people, the idea of going to a third world country, you know, right, and getting on a bus without knowing where you're going to sleep that night is crazy talk, right? But for you, you're like, no, I, I actually know how to kind of hedge the downside. I'm not going to die on the side of the road. Like there's going to be, or you have the confidence in your ability to improvise and figure it out. Exactly. Right? That is domain specific, and you build it in different arenas they seem to be fairly compartmentalized. And so I'm very confident in my ability to do that in entrepreneurship, like to figure out a way or to help a company find an option C when all they see and all they're being told are option A or B. And they're both unattractive options, right? Company's about to go under. We need money. We can either recapitalize the company and just get raped where everyone's going to get diluted. That means like the early guys like me suddenly get knocked down to one-sixth of their percentage ownership of the company. Ooh. That kind of stuff happens all the time. And in fact, that's happening to one of my companies right now that I invested in several years ago. What's the option C? I mean, so I'm good at finding the option C, just like you're good at finding the option C. If like grandma A and grandma B on a train say, sorry, pal, I'm not in the mood to <laughs> talk. Not taking me home. <laughs> not taking you home tonight. <laughs> and you're, uh, you have extreme confidence in that domain. So there, there are a few books I'd recommend checking out. The first is just a fun read, also called "More Money Than God," which is is effectively like liar's poker, but talks about the hedge fund world. Not because I think anyone should invest in hedge funds or become a hedge fund manager necessarily, but it points out how very and it profiles how very very distinct personalities and different character traits can be used successfully in this under this broad umbrella that we call investing. How people can have completely different rules, completely different ways of operating, and nonetheless become billionaires in their own right, using seemingly opposing approaches. Right? Uh, and that book will also teach you that you should not set foot into an investing arena expecting to beat the market unless you have, and the market could be 100 people in Silicon Valley, in my case, right? 100 other, say, micro-cap investors of some type. 
Or it could be everyone who reads Barron's. Or it could be everyone who watches Mad Money. Or it could be everyone who's buying public equities. I mean, there, there are different markets that we could talk about. But you should not set foot in a market and expect to win unless you have some type of informational, analytical, or behavioral advantage. If you don't do that, uh, I think Liar's Poker is also great a great book to read, you realize that the professionals are professionals for a reason. Like these people don't get rewarded with hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars year after year out of sheer luck. I mean, these are, these are cold, in some cases, not all, but like cold-blooded killers who are really good at their games. Like you, you would not, I remember somebody else said this, but it's like you wouldn't walk up to Tiger Woods and bet your entire life savings <laughs> on a golf match again. You <laughs> yeah. wouldn't walk up to Mike Tyson in his right. prime and say, you know what? <laughs> You're pretty good. Let's go two rounds. I'm, put, I'm, I'm taking out a second mortgage. I'm putting it down. You would never do that in a million years, and yet people do it every day in the public markets. They walk out. They have no idea other than what they read in Barron's alongside 10 million other people. They think they have an advantage, and then you know, high-frequency traders or someone else just comes in and goes, yep, yeah, that money, that's not yours anymore. I'm going to take that. Thank you very much. And they do this day in and day out, thousands or millions of times a day. Uh, now, so there are kind of two different, I would say, buckets, at least how I think about investing. So number one is, is there a way to invest in which you can't lose? And I know this, this is going to sound funny and... Uh, sounds like some type of, of um, empty promise, but the real world MBA was a structure as much for my psychology as anything else that allowed me to win even if I lose, right? So the even if the capital goes down, we were talking about investing as allocating of resources. It's okay. I'm developing, I'm earning skills and relationships that transcend that one project. And to me, I... I you, I figured out my sort of max allowable financial tuition that I could afford to stomach that wouldn't put me in the poorhouse or cause me to make bad decisions out of fear or desperation. And then I tracked it over time. It's not like I assessed it once at the beginning, set my assumptions, and then looked at it two years later. I was, I was really spot-checking throughout this entire experience to make sure I wasn't careening off the rails despite a lot of mistakes. And there, there are other ways to do that. So for instance, in my life, I have my highly speculative, I, I, would, I, do, I dislike that uh, description, but I'll use it. Highly speculative, say, startup investing or cryptocurrency investing, where these assets could go to zero. Like you could lose it all, right? And you're okay with that. I'm okay with it. Uh, I am okay with it for a host of reasons that we can get into if, if you're interested. I view risk as the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome. So I define risk very, very carefully so that I don't get lost in using it in uh, ambiguous ways that screw up my thinking. I really pay a lot of attention to these words that get thrown around in investing. So risk, what is risk? To me, it's the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome. Very few things are irreversible. So if I can lose money in one area and making it back in another, let's say I'm building the podcast simultaneously because I'm invest. Let's say I'm interviewing investors like I did for Tribe of Mentors. There are probably 20 world-class investors in this book, and I'm learning about investing while I'm creating a book that I can sell 
while I'm recording audio that I can put on my podcast and sell advertising against. <laughs> if I try what they advise and I lose 50K, it doesn't matter at all. I've already made it back two other ways. And, and that is discounting, to some extent, the learning that is taking place that can be applied elsewhere. So, so for me, <clears throat> I'm looking at, I have my speculative stuff and I'm trying to hedge against it. So what does hedge mean in the sense of hedge fund? Hedge means, uh, at least traditionally, that you, ha you, you have long and short positions. Now, this, this is not what I'm doing, but in the hedge fund world, in the early days at least, they would be long certain, say, companies, to keep it simple. So they think Disney's going up, so they're long Disney. And then they think other companies might go down, and they are short those companies without getting into the technical details of it, uh, hedge funds, unlike venture capital firms and startup investors, can benefit from assets that go down. I know it's counterintuitive, but they can. This, in my mind, makes hedge fund managers in general more rational than startup or tech investors who only benefit from, from market or assets that go up. Because when, when you're in a position where you only benefit, at least in your official capacity as an investor in tech from things that go up, you're more prone to confirmation bias, where you want to see indicators that things are going up because it's a requirement for you to sell yourself into believing that what you're doing is going to turn out well, or that the people whose money you represent, uh, their outcomes are going to turn out well. So it creates a, a weird echo chamber where people can deceive themselves very easily. All right, so I have all this, this speculative stuff that I try to hedge against by <clears throat> having assets that might be inversely correlated so that if tech completely crashes through the floor, other things might go up that I own, right? That can be done a, a bunch of different ways and we, we don't have to get into it right now and that's not something that most people should even think about. But another way that I invest, and again, it's, it's, it's broader, right? It's... it's, it's it's allocating resources for moving it from something from low yield to higher yield. So let's say I have savings that is not working for me or savings that are not working for me. I, I always have very large cash, or for me, I have six, at least six months of cash reserves that can cover all of my expenses at all times. So I do have sort of an apocalypse fund at all times. Uh, but I may take some of that cash and say invest in purchasing a home uh, you know, I moved to to Austin, Texas, not too too long ago. A home that I love so much that I'm perfectly happy to keep that for ten years, twenty years it makes no difference to me. All right. So now, why is that a no lose investment? Because I'm not only ideally using my brain to invest in a way that that asset should over time appreciate, but even if it doesn't. I am creating a home that decreases my anxiety, that provides a refuge so that I can recover from being battle-weary out in the world doing other things. And that, in turn, allows me to make money back another way that more than covers every cost associated with the home. Uh, so one of, the, one of the biggest mistakes I've made, and I did make this mistake early on, and it caused me a lot of stress, was thinking, well, if I invest in since we use real estate, let's use that as, as another example. If I invest in this house and it suddenly plummets in value, which happened to me in 2008, the first home I bought, San Jose, California, immediately 
plummeted in value after the uh, October the subprime. Yeah. Yes, exactly. After the whole subprime disaster, it just nosedived. I mean, pure tailspin. And in my mind, I'm looking at it. I don't have a lot of experience yet in investing. This is very early on. And I decide I have to, I'm not going to be rash and sell it right now because I'd lose all that money, but I have to make the money back on this investment. So I proceed to do all sorts of things like move out and rent a place and then try to rent that and to use a property management company. And it consumes so much of my resources, my time, my attention, and so on. You were losing. I was losing because it also prevented me from focusing on other places where I could make the money back much more quickly and much more reliably. And uh, I ended up selling that place at a loss, which was the right decision at the time because it freed up my attention to then focus on things like book, speaking engagement, and so on. Right? You don't have to make the money back the same way you lost it. Uh, so those are, those are a few of my thoughts on investing. Now, we've talked about the books that you should read to scare you, uh, but then I would, I would say for the vast majority of people, and I remember I went to, a, I, uh, went to great lengths to, at one point, I want to say 2009, maybe 2010, to in person go to Omaha and make my way to the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting. And I travel all the way to Nebraska because I wanted to ask Warren Buffett a question. And at the time, I don't think they do this public Q&A anymore. At the time, there were mics set up all over this gigantic arena. I mean, it's like the Super Bowl of investing, right? I mean, Get they, a lottery system. It's, it's, well, they open the doors and people camp out overnight like they're you know, going to a, a Taylor Rock Swift concert, concert or yeah. whatever. And... <laughs> then everyone rushes in like maniacs to try to get prime seating. And I didn't care about seating so much as I cared about proximity to microphone. So I get in there and I was in, yeah, in pretty good shape at the time. And you're sliding I, down railings and Oh, well, I, I ran up to the first volunteer and I said, where is the most difficult to reach microphone in this entire arena? And she's like, it's way over there in that corner up on like the, whatever, the 27th row. I was like, thank you. So you're in and a so, nosebleed section. So I sprinted to the most difficult to get to mic because I assumed if I went to another mic, I might end up seventh in line. And if they're rotating through the mics, there's a good chance I'm never going to get my question in. And I eventually waiting and waiting and waiting and hours and hours and hours. And all of a sudden, we've got Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger on stage. Uh, Warren Buffett's like the... the at least his demeanor is the, the friendly old grandpa, aw shucks, Warren Buffett. And then Charlie Munger's kind of like the cantankerous uh, Mortimer up in the, in the rafters and the Muppets. <laughs> you know, he, he just suffers, he does not suffer fools gladly, and he's hilarious. Uh, so you've got those two up there drinking their cherry Coke and eating C's candies. I'm astonished that these guys are still as functional as they are. And. <laughs> It, it's my turn. It's about to be my turn. Oh, you got you. Yeah, you won so the I'm lottery. Up, I'm, up, can... I'm, I'm up next, right? And my heart's pounding. And I asked. Went with one question. You only get one question. That's it. You don't get a. You, you don't get around two. Whole so, trip just to ask. One just question. one question. And uh, the answer was very. What was the question? I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> the answer was very dissatisfying to me. But now I realize it's. It's. I think it's accurate. So I asked him, if you were, at the time I was probably 30, 31, I said, if you were 30 years old, had a long career ahead of you, <clears throat> were well-educated, aggressive, could do analysis, and you had an extra $100,000 to invest, 
what would you do with that $100,000? I think that's what I asked him along those lines. And he said, I'd put it all in the S&P 500 and I'd get back to work. <laughs> next question. <laughs> you traveled thousands yeah. of miles. I was like, next question. And I'm like, wait, what, what? And then, you know, cut, boom, mic's off. Like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. And uh, I spent a lot of time afterwards looking for people with a particular badge, which was a VIP badge of sorts. These were like the muckety mucks. Many of them really good investors in their own right. So I was like, all right, well, Warren's not going to give me much, but let me go kind of spot, spot the people in the crowd or at dinner who had these fancy badges on or who were waiting in line at the restroom, who cares, and try to suss out maybe a little more <laughs> nuance to this answer. And I've come around to it and realized that's probably close to the right advice for most people who do not have an informational advantage or behavioral, analytical, et cetera, advantage that gives them the ability to compete and not get their faces ripped off. Uh, I do think you can create that, and certainly you could create that, and you are creating it. Right? I mean, you're investing in a podcast, and through all of your meandering travels, disguised as a vagrant, developed the capability to ask the right questions and get people to share stories. So that was a very, very maybe accidental investment that now allows you to have an unfair advantage in the world of podcasting. Uh, so this is a space in which you can play, right? So, but for the vast majority of people who are asking, where should I put some of my savings that I can afford to lose? It's an important condition in my mind. And the answer is for most people, I think, what Warren Buffett said, roughly, and that is find very, very low-cost index funds that mimic the market and invest in the market as a whole and just leave it. Do not touch it. Uh, and, and there's no one-size-fits-all approach, but I do think there's, a lot, there's definitely a logic to that it can turn into a disaster. Like There are scenarios in which that turns out terribly. Like You invest a bunch of money at the same time I bought my house in 2008. Uh-oh. Boom. You lose 50%, right? Well, if you lose 50% of your total investment, <clears throat> it's not the case that you get back to the starting line by making 50% back. No, no, no. If you had, say, $100 in and you lose 50 now to get back to 100 you need a 100% return just to get back to where you started. 100% is a lot of percent. <laughs> And that could take better to do it another way. Could take a long, long time, right? Yeah. So there is an element of timing that you cannot control or predict, <clears throat> unless you have some supernatural powers uh, that, uh, or inside information of some type about rare events that move the market. But yeah, I, the, the 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 overarching though recommendation I would make is train your thinking and look at investing as allocating resources and moving them from areas of lower yield into areas of higher yield. But it doesn't have to be for pure passive financial return. Okay. And in my case, it's, it very rarely is. What, what you have just done is eliminated my fear. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's why I want you to read books that'll scare you. <laughs> uh, no, but, because you, you pushed the money aside. I have, I, I know, I don't know anything about money, but what you're telling me is investment is about time. 
I, I can understand time. Yeah, totally. It may be about what you're good at. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm more relaxed about it. Yeah. Do you think that's one of the, the chief things that you do is alleviate people's fears? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, that's a prerequisite for almost everything that I do. If I view myself as a teacher, I need to be very, very, very cognizant of how to remove fears that prevent people from taking even the first small step. Otherwise, all the how-to information in the world makes no difference at all. Right? So if I'm deathly afraid of swimming, as I was until early 30s, which is embarrassing, certainly, you could give me all the how-to information in the world, but if I don't believe it's possible for me to swim, just like you have a story that you're telling yourself, which is, I'm bad at money, I don't understand money. Right? So if my narrative is, I'm not built to swim, I can't swim, I don't float, if, you, if someone can't disprove that to me in some fashion, wow. the, the most elegant, effective how-to information in the world it makes no difference. Because I'm receiving the prescription from the doctor, but if I don't fulfill that prescription, take the medication, it's all for naught. It's worth zero. So the way I might circumvent that is by saying, all right, well, let's just, we can assume that Cal's bad at money. And you may have exhibit A through Z that you can point to as proof points that you're well, bad at all money. All you got to do is look at a dollar bill and you see George Washington laughing at me <laughs> when he looks up at me. <laughs> Ulysses S. Grant and say, hey, Cal, let's go on a bender. <laughs> so, right. So there may be a bunch of proof points that you could use <laughs> to demonstrate that Cal's bad at money. But I might say, well, perhaps it's because you're looking at money through the wrong lens and you're viewing money as the tool itself, whereas if I taught you to look at the corollaries to money, the things that correspond to money that you can control, that that is the indirect way that Cal can get really good at money is by not thinking about getting good at money. You're getting good instead at doing experiments like the podcast where you're putting, you have absolutely finite downside, right? Like the costs for you are very, very minimal you are hopefully enjoying the process. Oh, I so, love it. Right. So there's a redeeming, there are redeeming characteristics of the experience. You're getting to more deeply know people. You are hopefully at the same time continuing to hone your craft or learning more about, say, the technical setup of a podcast, about the production flow. So you're acquiring skills. So who gives a fuck? Like if it doesn't work out, you're still ahead. No, right. this is the best investment I ever made this <laughs> last hour. <laughs> so uh, in that way, Cal, is, Cal can be very, very good at money, but it's by not thinking about the money per se, right? It's like if you're trying to get better or learn how to swim and you're like, well, how do I get better at pulling water? It's like, well... That's actually the wrong way to think about it because you're going to exert way too much effort. You're not going to be hydrodynamic. You'll make all these mistakes. Even though it appears that other people are swimming fast by pulling water, that's not the way you should think about it. And like, here's another way to look at it that will completely change the way you swim or enable you to swim in the first place, in my case. And then boom, all of a sudden, you know, in 10 days, you can go from not being able to swim a single lap in a pool to doing 40 laps in a single workout and finding it relaxing. And that can happen in seven to 10 days. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. And that's true in my experience in so many different domains, right? So if somebody, if you came to me and you're like, yeah, I'm paralyzed. I'm so terrible with money. I'm so bad at this, that, and the other thing. 
you know, I would, I would walk you through those, what, what we just did. I'd have you read a couple books. We'd talk about that. I would have you maybe do some, depending on what we're talking about, maybe do some paper trading. Uh, some paper trading means you're taking a hypothetical budget of X number of dollars and you're investing in quotation marks in companies by just keeping track of where you're allocating that money. Then you watch it over six months. And at different intervals, I would ask, you know, are you going to buy? Are you going to buy more, sell, or stay the same? And see how you respond to the news and all the crazy chicken little skies falling bullshit that's floating around out there. And that's a simulation. It's not a perfect simulation. I mean, the way I would probably do it is I would say, all right, you're going to invest and we'd, we'll look at your finances and be like, all right, we're going to invest X amount because that's how much you tell me you can afford to lose without going crazy. Okay. But what we're going to do first is we're going to go to the racetrack and <laughs> we're going to take just enough money to hurt, like 100 of your dollars, 500 of your dollars, and we're going to play the horses. And you're going to watch it all disappear. And then we're going to look at, then we're going to look at your response. We're going to look at how Cal feels for the next day and the next week. And we'll start to do diagnostic tests like that. Right? And then I'm going to make you go to Starbucks. And like my friend Noah Kagan suggests would-be entrepreneurs do, you're going to ask for 10% off your coffee every day for the next week. Don't care if it's Starbucks. I don't care if it's corporate. I don't care if it's tiny shop. Like you get to the front, you're going to say, you know, I'm having a pretty tough day or I'm having a great day. Would you mind giving me 10% off my coffee? And you can't tell them it's an experiment. You can't tell them Tim Ferriss told you to do it. You're just getting more comfortable with that discomfort and then realizing that the downside is exactly zero. Right? Oh, man. So I would start to do that type of stuff to not just train you intellectually to think about how to allocate X, Y, and Z, but to also help you to realize, uh, as you know, Patton Oswalt said in... Uh, to me when, when I interviewed him for my last book, uh, or wrote to me rather, I asked him what his favorite failure was. And he said, my favorite failure is every time, and I'm paraphrasing, every time I ate it on stage, horribly ate it on stage, bombed, woke up the next day and the world hadn't ended. Because then you start to realize that you're more resilient. Uh, you're, uh, so it's like you're the Navy SEALs. You're who, less psychologically affected who do the drown proofing. Right. They go down to the bottom of the pool. And somebody passes out. Bring them back up. Yeah, which you that survive. part I don't recommend. <laughs> that part I don't recommend you try at home. But uh, yeah, you're you're inoculating yourself against fear by delivering small doses. It's like a flu vaccine. And in doing it that way, you start to realize that, and we talked about Buffett and Munger, like you don't have to do, you don't have to perform miracles or have... A, a, an incredible Michael Jordan-like superpower in some capacity to be a great investor. You just have to routinely not make stupid, terribly stupid decisions. You're even allowed to make a handful of terribly stupid decisions. You just can't routinely make terribly stupid decisions, which the vast majority of people make in all forms of investing. So, wow, yeah. I got one last question here because I know we both have separate dinners to go to. And I'm looking at your newest opus, Tribe of Mentors. It's about the same size we were talking before as Tools of Titans. It is. And my question is, do you consider yourself more a teacher or a student? <laughs> uh, more a student. I think that's, I think that's the 
the precursor or the prerequisite to being a good teacher. I think if you close yourself off to learning and improving as a teacher, that's the death knell. You become too rigid and codified and dogmatic. Uh, in light of new information, you have to be open, or I think you should be open to modifying your approach to teaching or whatever it might be. So for me, the the ability, and it is an ability, to be a good student and to learn quickly and to ask the right questions, to go two or three levels deeper, is stage one. And then stage two is me gathering all of that information and looking at the areas that have perhaps been misconstrued as complex and then simplifying it down to the smallest number of moving pieces, right? which, which for excellence in many, 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 many fields, well, you know, 130 people in Tribe Mentors, these short little profiles ranging from you know, the, the most famous actors and directors you've heard of to Kelly Slater, the most decorated surfer of all time, who has the, he has the, I suppose the, the accolade or the, the incredible distinction of being the youngest person ever to win a world championship and the oldest. Pretty, pretty wild. Uh, or Dara Torres. I mean, it goes on and on. And then, as we mentioned earlier, maybe 20 billionaires or something like that. Uh, one of the best places to start is looking at, say, the first 120 minutes of their day. So it's like, okay, we can talk about all this high concept stuff, but like first 60 minutes of your day, what's your boot up sequence? What is your, how do you win the morning to win the day? I want to know that. Um, and, and so there are ways as a teacher that I can say, all right, I have this massive amount of feedback from person X. How do I help to distill that into really tactical, short, actionable advice that will, just like asking for 10% off for coffee, demonstrate some deeper truth that then frees people to experiment in other ways. Right? Yeah. Right? So, so I'm always looking at this as training. All of this is training. It's all coachable. It's like teaching a dog a trick. People say, oh, dogs can't learn new tricks. It's total horseshit. Uh, it's completely, completely untrue. You just have to understand the basics of operant classical conditioning. Pretty straightforward, actually, if you read a book like Don't Shoot the Dog, which is a fantastic book. And it applies to humans. It applies to training yourself. And the quote, one of the quotes I think about often is from Archilochus. It's an old name. And it is, we do not rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Oh, man. Right? So if you've never invested with real money before, and it's just been paper trading, and you walk into a competitive real market where there are winners and losers and you've never had the psychological, you've never had the feelings associated with risking real money, you're going to play very differently. You're not going to be that guy who is necessarily hitting home runs every at bat in rehearsal. So you have to train yourself and practice as realistically as possible. It could be with small amounts of money. It could be with small amounts of reputational risk. It could be with small amounts of fill in the blank. But uh, this applies everywhere, right? It's like, you know, we could, you could interview 100 people without a microphone and recording equipment. But as soon as you're holding a mic, you're hitting record, you know it's being preserved. Right. The different psychological experience. dynamics are different. Yeah. And you're playing poker. Oh, great. You're playing with Monopoly money. That's cute. Okay. Well, before you go to Vegas, and you're, since you seem to be on a winning streak and you're eager to go prove yourself, 
Like, why don't we play a game like maximum the amount that you're allowed to spend is $100 tonight. That's it, right? Before you go to Atlantic City or Vegas and then see how that person plays and it might be a very different game. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, as James Cameron has said, which I love, you know, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you will, you will under times of duress or when stakes are high or when you're overexcited, when emotions, positive or negative, are running through your veins, coursing really strongly, you are going to revert to however you have trained. So, you know, think about your training. And so in Tribe of Mentors, the whole thing, like that is a cookbook of different ways to train yourself with different tools, different routines, different habits from 130 people who are the best at what they do in every conceivable discipline imaginable. And uh, I always, I shouldn't say always, but in this case, certainly wrote the book that I wanted to have as a reference. That's it. Like I write books that I can't find for myself. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait to pick this up because yeah. if this book frees me in the way the last hour has, yeah. who knows what's possible? I think it will. And that's, a strong statement and I don't take it lightly, but I know you and we have, we have quite a bit of history and this book in particular, Tribe of Mentors, I spent a lot of time with people who had mental frameworks or approaches to problem solving that could be applied many, many, many different places. So we have people from say, uh, the world of poker, we have poker phenoms like Daniel Negreanu, we have Fedor Holtz, we have Liv Bory, Annie Duke. I mean, we have incredibly adept poker players who are really good at thinking about logic and uncertainty and probabilities. Then we have some of the best-known investors in the world, Ray Dalio, who's the founder of the largest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater Associates. I think they have $160 billion in their management. We have people like Adam Fisher. There are names that almost no one will recognize, but these are people who don't, don't typically do any media. Right? So then you have someone like Adam Fisher, who is just selected to be head of macro and real estate for Soros, which is arguably, I mean, it's one of the biggest jobs in all of investing, in finance. So he's in here. And then it, it just goes on and on and on. And you pick up these little gems where maybe it's just a quote that one of these people like, like Max Levchin, one of the co-founders of PayPal. And the co-founders of Twitter, Facebook, Salesforce, LinkedIn, Craigslist, they're all in here. But you take Max Levchin as one example. And one of the quotes that he thinks of often is from a movie called Ronin, written by David Mamet. And the quote is, I might be paraphrasing here, but I do think of at least this variant often, whenever there is doubt, there is no doubt. Just as a heuristic for decision making, right? So if you meet someone and you're trying to convince yourself to do the deal, but your spider sense is saying no, it's a no, period, right? Or say uh, Kyle Maynard, who's this incredible incredible uh, man, friend of mine now, born a congenital quad amputee. So he has, his arms get, are, are cut off at mid upper arm and then mid upper leg, close to the hip. Despite that, he is in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, which is a long story. He, he is a very skilled wrestler. <laughs> and the same people who called him wrestling child abuse and 
criticize his parents in the early days because he was losing every match. When he started winning and then started dominating, they called it an unfair advantage, just to give you an idea. Uh, he's the only quad amputee or was the first quad amputee without the aid of prosthetics to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. He, mount, he military crawled all of Mount Kilimanjaro. The guy's a stud. And he shared something with me in Tribe of Mentors that he learned from a very, very high-level CEO. And the, 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 the framework is so elegant. It's so beautifully powerful. And it's, it's the following. So simple. For opportunities, for, say, evaluating opportunities or hiring people or considering accepting someone's invitation out to coffee, whatever it might be, before saying yes or no, rank it on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being the best, but you can't use a 7. That's the key. So 7 is the safe, non-unoffensive Switzerland of answers, right? And it's a cop-out. It doesn't give you valuable information for making a decision. But if you remove 7, all right, rank it from 1 to 10. All right, you, get this, you have this invitation to go to Orlando to give a speaking engagement. Okay. Nothing against Orlando. I've spent time there. Just the first place <laughs> name that came to mind. But like 1 to 10, how excited or enthusiastic are you about this? You can't use a 7. 6 is barely passing. That's a no. 8 is I'm excited. 10 is I'm ecstatic. But 8 is I'm excited. And if you're not excited, it's binary. It's a no. And it's Boom. a 6. Yeah, okay. So I've been using this constantly recently. And then, of course, there's super tactical stuff where let's say somebody's maybe an incredible interviewer and they talk about the one piece of gear that they can't live without. Or someone will say, you know, the, the purchase of less than $100 that's most changed my life in the last few years is this supplement called Host Defense, which is a combination of different mushrooms. And I go out and I buy that and lo and behold, boom, like flu season doesn't even affect me at all. That's what's happened right now. So I'm now I'm traveling with this this <laughs> this concoction that Samin Nosra, this incredible chef, recommended to me because she travels so much and she knows she's a road warrior. Uh, so so it's, it's all across the board, uh, but the intention being that it's kind of a buffet that you can dip into for five or 10 minutes each day, and it's like, ooh, okay, this is, this is my tool for the day or the week. Mushrooms. Mushrooms. It uh, could be, could be any, anything. Or you have, say, a journalist who's been deployed to war zones who says, I've tried every earplug in the world, and these are the best earplugs for travel. Period. End of story. Like, that's useful. Uh, and... It's, it was a lot of fun to put together. So I'm, I'm excited for people to, to check it out. I'm very proud of it. I think it's very easy to read. And most importantly, really, 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 really actionable. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I cannot wait to pick this book up. Yeah, well, you have an inscribed copy en route to your house right now. It's already, it's already being delivered by Santa Claus. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much for that and everything because... The way that you have displaced fear in my life is phenomenal. And I have no idea where it's all taken me, but there's no ceilings now because there's no fear there. Amen. I, I, walk out of, I walk out of here without any fear of money now. Well, call me if that changes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be the guy who convinces you to ride motorcycles without a helmet. But, but simultaneously, most of the fear we have, I mean, if you think back to some of my biggest influences and uh, how I, uh, stoicism, for instance, has a huge impact in my life, 
well, our, our dear Seneca the Younger, who was definitely on the front lines. I mean, he was effectively an invest, the most successful investment banker, uh, statesman, and arguably the most successful playwright of his day simultaneously while being an advisor to the emperor. So he was doing real things, controversial character for a bunch of other reasons. But one of his quotes is, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. And I think that is a refrain. It certainly is a refrain that I constantly keep in mind. You have to stress test those fears. I mean, don't don't let these goblins live in your head tax free. Like, make them audition and earn the right to be there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I got to end this on a high five. Yeah, yeah man, <laughs> that was just beautiful. Thank you so much. My pleasure, man. And. Um, I'd be remiss, given my my history with infomercials, if I didn't say, if you want to check out free chapters and the list of all the mentors and tribe mentors, take a look at tribeofmentors.com. All the stuff on that site's free. And uh, yeah, if, if that's not what you're looking for, I hope you find what you're looking for. Tribe of Mentors from the Ultimate Mentor. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cal. Always fun. Cheers. Well... As you can tell, I'm a new man. I'm no longer afraid of money. We will see where this is going to take me. Listen to the next episode and find out. And I'm sorry, but I still haven't figured out how to subscribe to my own podcast. But make sure you do, because otherwise, Kevin, the manager, is going to be very mad at me. See you next time. I gotta say this, I'm so honored and excited to be releasing this podcast with Squarespace. I look at their website and all the websites their users create, it's so beautiful. I see the commercial they did with John Malkovich, it's so funny. It's just great to be partnering with such an innovative and creative company. The future of websites is really here with Squarespace. Visit squarespace.com for a free trial. Use the offer code FUSSMAN to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, and you'll see why I'm so happy. You don't want to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect candidate? Get a head start on the interview process with ZipRecruiter. Add screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. That's another reason why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Right now, anyone who hears this can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.